Bing bong. I am back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast where I got my good friend Caleb Franzen back on. We had him on maybe six, seven months ago at this point now. So um, if you're newer to the show, welcome him back and uh, get some alpha. Check out his newsletter. It's absolutely amazing. He's doing the doing the damn thing. He's uh, doing the digital nomad life. Uh, all made possible because of you know his uh, great insights and things like that. So we have an outstanding, outstanding conversation. So be sure to tune in for another action-packed episode. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast should not be taken as financial advice. And big shout out to my sponsor, Idaho Armored Vaults. Bob Coleman and his team are doing the best to bring you the lowest premiums of anybody in the precious metals market. You can reach out to them at goldsilvervault.com or give them a call. Just search Idaho Armored Vaults and you can get Bob's line directly. Speak with the CEO. You could get anything from the precious metals. You could even get weaponry and store it in there as well. And then, woo! Big shout out to Sovereign Energy, Sovereign S V R N energy.com you can get yourself a 12 pack of the best energy drink in the game it has a pull tab where you can get some sats some bitcoin back with every single sip and it's just an outstanding energy drink it gives me clear focus it helped me stay focused throughout this whole entire interview and if you use promo code green candle you'll get 10 percent off so not only well, you get sats back, you get 10% off on all of it. So use all that. And then lastly, shout out Hodler's official, H-O-D-L-E-R-S official.com. They got the best Bitcoin merch in the game. They got some outstanding jerseys. You can buy one yourself and use promo code Green Candle and get 10% off as well on those. They got the black and the white baseball jerseys out right now with a brand new collections coming out soon. Get one for your family and friends for Christmas. Help spread the good word. It's a Satoshi Genesis pack with the 09 on the back. Smoking that Satoshi pack. All right, enough for me. Let's get into the episode with Caleb. Whoosh. What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I now have recurring guest, Caleb back, <laughs> who is uh, extremely bullish at the moment. Uh, he fired off a tweet yesterday on how bullish he should be when he comes on the pod. So <laughs> I'll leave you broad, man. Caleb, one, how you doing? And two, how bullish are you, man? <laughs> I'm good, man. I did that tweet yesterday because, um, you know, Bitcoin's just doing Bitcoin things. And so I, I did kind of a facetious tweet saying, how, how bullish should I be on a scale of one to like 32,500, whatever the price was at the time. and after that, it hit 35K. So I guess I'm on a scale of one to 35,000. I'm 35,000 bullish. <laughs> there we go, man. I love to hear it. Well, um, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll leave it kind of like broad for you right now because there's obviously a lot of craziness going on, right? Uh, geo geopolitical tensions, uh, the Fed raising interest rates, uh, tons since we last spoke in February. And, uh, you know, a lot of craziness kind of going on in the overall macro environment. So, I'll leave it broad. How do you see the overall macro environment, you know, the full global scale of things? And uh, yeah, where do you kind of see us going? Yeah. So, you know, I made sure to go back and watch the last recording that we did back in February. First of all, to kind of keep myself honest, like were the predictions and the perspectives I shared at the time accurate, you know, basically 
what are we, eight months later. Um, and I think, you know, a fair amount of them were. And, you know, at the time, one of the things that we had talked about really was, you know, this kind of elevated risk of a recession and that the Fed was at some point, somewhere, somehow going to break something. And that was in early February when we recorded that, or maybe at the, the end of January. And, you know, what did we see thereafter? We saw the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history, you know, within a month and a half of us recording that. And so I think for a lot of the people who were perhaps arguing or suggesting last year or the beginning of this year that, you know, the Fed needs to break something, you know, we've met that conditional requirement. The Fed has indeed broken something. And, you know, miraculously and thankfully, it didn't lead to some sort of massive collapse or failure or this kind of widespread um, downturn, right? And so I think from that, sorry, the call to prayer, sorry, just my luck. Did we start recording? The call to prayer comes in. Um, and so I think from that perspective, right, we've still had uh, significant disinflation um, all year and really for the past 12 months. A lot of people don't want to acknowledge that disinflation. And I think, you know, that's to their own fault. Um, but as I kind of look at things right now, unequivocally, the odds of a soft landing have risen and risen. I still don't see that as kind of the base case of a soft landing, but I think everyone should be impressed at the resilience of the economy, of the labor market, of the U.S. consumer. I mean, what the hell? Like last week, the Atlanta Fed just updated their, uh, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name, it's the GDP now, sorry. Um, for Q3 uh, real GDP growth. And it's coming in at 5.4% real GDP growth. That's adjusted for inflation, right? So on a nominal basis, you could you know, argue that you know, the, the, the nominal economy is growing at a pace of like seven or maybe even 8%. You know, that's a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, growth rate. That's certainly not recessionary. It's certainly not recessionary when we have a 3.8% unemployment rate. And so all of the, and I mean, we had the retail sales data, things look quite resilient, you know? And I think from that, standpoint, we need to kind of applaud the fact that, you know, the Fed has navigated this environment really well. And, you know, one of the things that was maybe too harsh on when we recorded back in February was, you know, I, I said, when was the last time the Fed got something right? You know, and maybe I'll eat my words on this in a few months, but so far it's like, hey, I think they've done just about as good a job as we could have hoped for at this point. Yeah. And I mean, I, I agree with you, right? I mean, especially if you look at the dollar compared to other fiat currencies and kind of, uh, you know, the aspect of that, where I guess the Fed is kind of looking out for the U.S. first. Um, so I guess like, you know, in that perspective, you know, it, it obviously they got it right by, you know, kind of needing to keep rates elevated and they're going to continue to do that. But, you know, the Fed has also been hinting at a lot of potential blood in the streets when it comes to, you know, increasing unemployment, just kind of some of the after effects that come along with increasing rates. You know, the narrative around uh, the Fed increasing rates is that they, you know, essentially did it a little bit late. Um, so, you know, mm -hmm. I guess just, you know, from that perspective, do you think that there's a pretty good possibility that the Fed, once they start pulling back, that it's going to be, you know, in a sense, too late. And, you know, we might see some of that after effects, whether it's, you know, recession, depression, what have you. So I think they've already pulled back, right? We've essentially had now two or three straight pauses in their last, you know, four or five meetings. And so, you know, from that standpoint, um, the Fed has taken their foot off the gas pedal. And I think unequivocally, you can make the case, and I would agree with this. So I'm, you know, I'm stating this is like, we're, we're much closer to the end of the rate hike schedule than the beginning, right? And what do markets care about is they kind of care about trajectory and direction and rate of change. And so when we look at those things, like I think the, the market has been pricing in that we're closer to the end for some time now. 
And as we continue to see evidence of this disinflationary environment, that kind of continues to be the case. I know we've seen some some choppy dynamics in the equity markets over the last three months, but I think that even the the choppiness and the consolidation that we've seen have largely been healthy. Um, we've seen a complete sentiment reset in the market going from extreme greed back down to extreme fear. And I think um, the S&P is only down like eight or 9% from the year to date highs. And we're still up about 10% year to date. So if you look at the average calendar year for the S&P 500 or for any of the US indexes, with where they're at right now, they're, they're pretty, I mean, not the Dow and not the, not the Russell, but when you look at the S&P and certainly the NASDAQ, they're significantly outpacing their average calendar year return. So this has been a great year for equities and for stocks, uh, largely speaking. Yeah, and you're nailing it on the head there as well. But, um, you know, some of the other aspects that are interesting, um, you know, are, are uh, the, the banking industry, right? You also like kind of hit on that a little bit earlier, right? We saw like some of the biggest bank failures um, that we've seen, you know, in U.S. history with uh, since the last time we spoke. And, you know, it, it always kind of seems like when, depending on who you ask that, you know, they're, they're either anticipating potentially more bank failures or that 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 entire sector is kind of, you know, I guess hairy in a sense because of, you know, the fractional reserve banking and kind of some of those those aspects of things. So, um, you know, I know you, you used to work in that industry, so maybe you have a little finger on that pulse. But uh, yeah. So how do you, I guess, foresee that the rest of uh, I guess this all kind of playing out in the banking industry? Do you think that, you know, I guess the banks that I guess were poorly managed were the ones that were kind of filtered out and everything else should be, uh, I guess, pretty pretty good uh, for the rest of, the, of, I guess, this hiking cycle? Look, I don't have the answer for that. My, my best guess would be that we've seen the worst of the banking situation. One of the things that we had talked about back in February was that, you know, my expectation was for loans and leases to kind of slow down and that we had gone through this massive kind of boom in credit creation. Um, that is, you know, really kind of unwound itself, right? So back when we spoke in February, loans and leases were up like almost 12% year over year. Today, it's like three and a half or 4% year over year. So a lot of that is due to base effects. And we've actually seen credit on a week over week or month over month basis actually contract. M2 is contracting, deposits are contracting, securities and bank credit is contracting. So all of these kind of banking or monetary uh, data points are contracting. And, you know, unequivocally, that puts a stress on these banks. Um, and so, you know, there, there could be more issues that arise, but again, I, I really do believe that at this point, right, banks have had pretty much, um, at least six months to kind of lick their wounds, to try to get their balance sheets in better, uh, positions to maybe unwind some bad positions, whatever the case is. And so, um, I think that they're probably well-equipped to kind of continue handling things, but I will say from like an investor perspective, I, like I have zero interest and I've never had any interest in owning bank equities. Like I'm not going to go out and buy JP Morgan stock either as a trade or a long-term investment. Same with Bank of America, same with Citi, same with Deutsche Bank. Like I'm just not going to touch those stocks. I, I don't believe in that business model for the long run. And I see way better opportunities in the market than investing in, in banks, God forbid. Right. So, um, you know, maybe that kind of speaks to, uh, you know, the perspectives that I have on banks, but more from like an, from, you know, a capital allocation perspective. Um, like, you know, there's some of these really smart macro guys who almost exclusively own and trade some of these bank stocks. Like, oh my God, I don't know how these guys do it, you know? So, um, like kudos to them, but like, I'm not going to go shopping for some, you know, regional community bank, um, within my portfolio. Like, I'm just not going to do it. Um, so, 
Yeah, it's like, look, we might see some more of those failures. But I mean, one of the things that we talked about back in February is we don't know where those failures are going to arise. I didn't predict that it was going to happen in the banking sector, right? It could have been somewhere still in crypto. It could have been in one of these alternative asset managers. I had no idea. You know, so the, the fact that we had it in the banking sector, I think also kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, kind of the, the core fundamental of the financial system was kind of shaken to its core based on those interest rate hikes. And now that we've kind of leveled off, we have the BTFP, which apparently continues to increase in terms of, um, you know, the amount that, that banks are, are taking advantage of that program. But, you know, the fact that they are taking advantage of that program reduces the likelihood that something big is going to happen in the near future, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you know, that's all fair to say. But, you know, we, we did talk about like the loaning aspects of things. Right. And that obviously yeah. is connected in banking. And, you know, the real estate market is obviously always one of the, the I, ever since 2008, I guess it, it always is. Uh, people have been kind of calling for a crash, whether it's in the U.S. or uh, you know, commercial <laughs> banking or whatever. They think that, you know, yeah. real estate can't continue to go up. But it seems like obviously it's regional. And, you know, certain areas are hurting more than others. But, you know, from your perspective, um, you know, I, I guess, how do you see the overall health of the real estate industry, um, just whether it comes to like loaning, mortgages, that kind of thing? So I think it's super important to kind of bifurcate between like residential and commercial, right? So, you know, everyone is kind of up in arms about the pending doom of commercial real estate. And that could certainly be the case, you know, like I, I own um, Brookfield Corporation, um, and you know, they have a massive kind of commercial real estate portfolio. And one of the things that they've talked about is kind of like, uh, quality matters, right? And so if you own some of the premier assets in the space, you're going to do well. And if you own, you know, a bunch of, you know, office buildings, you're probably not going to do so well. If you own a bunch of, um, you know, mall real estate property, you're probably not going to do super well. And so it, it's kind of like this pick and choose kind of, um, area. And I think that, that, first of all, the, the, the type of the property matters and then the use case of the property really matters, right? So um, I think that's really important. When we look at kind of residential, uh, man, I've been really impressed with the fact that, you know, something like the S&P Case-Shiller National Home Index is back at all-time highs, right? We went through basically an eight-month consolidation um, and a four-month, like, uptrend reversal, right? So, you know, I think the latest data um, for the S&P Case-Shiller was back at all-time highs, um, but, you know, basically unchanged on a year-over-year -year basis. Um, and look, like, I did not foresee that, right? I thought, you know, and I think I still kind of believe this, is I expect to see real estate prices from a residential perspective probably just continue to moderate a little bit lower. Like, I, I don't see any big reason for why they should continue to be going up, especially when affordability is at all-time lows. We're seeing the, the purchase, uh, the mortgage purchase index, um, hitting, you know, the lowest level since like 1995, 96. So we're at extremes in that market. The, the thing that makes it so difficult to assess is when we're at these extreme negatives, it's almost like the only thing we can do is get better, right? Like how much worse can it really get? So I think that really kind of speaks to the crux of the situation in real estate, because again, when you're at extremes, it's like how, how much worse can it get? And if it can't get too much worse, like, Okay, it, it, it doesn't even need to really get too much better for it to really be better, right? Like it can just kind of stay around these levels and, and that's technically somewhat an improvement because, um, hey, at least it's not getting worse, right? Um, so I think that's interesting. And I saw something like, you know, uh, residential mortgage, like the 30-year fix got to 8%. And so I, I think that, you know, a lot of home buyers are probably getting 
they're, they're agreeing to these mortgages based on the premise that they'll be able to refi within two years, four years max, right? I mean, with affordability at literally all time lows, these people can't expect to continue to service this debt for this long at this pace, right? Especially if we go into somewhat of a recession, we see unemployment go off. And that's not necessarily my prediction, but you know, as we kind of assess probabilities here, right? And so um, I don't know, I think that's pretty interesting, but I, I continue to expect that we'll see kind of this um, almost like lockout or shutout between buyers and sellers. It takes two to tango, right? Buyers don't want to buy because affordability is at all-time lows and sellers don't want to sell because they don't want to give up equity and become a renter and they don't want to have to go buy something new and get into a new mortgage. So both sides are just saying, look, we're just going to sit on our hands. We're going to renew our lease. We're going to stay here in this home. The market will come back. And so I think that's kind of been, you know, the general trajectory, but with everyone kind of sitting on their hands, my expectation was we're just going to see a slow bleed in residential real estate. And so that's why I've been a little bit surprised at the resilience that, you know, we're basically back at all time highs on, on a national home price index. Yeah, and it, and it seems to be the case, right? And, and do you uh, kind of, uh, I guess, accredit that resilience in residential real estate to the resilience of the consumer? Because it seems like, you know, I guess from the data that's that's being put out, right, the job numbers are still very high. Um, yeah. Although there is a lot of cracks that are starting to surface from the consumer, whether it's, um, you know, student mm-hmm. loans, like personal savings, those kind of things. Um, but, you know, as far as, you know, I guess that the numbers can, the numbers say whether you believe in the validity of those or not, uh, you know, everybody's right. still kind of keeping their jobs and there seems to be, you know, I guess jobs on the market as well. Um, so do you kind yep. of accredit that to, um, you know, uh, the residential re- resilience to, I guess, the resilience of the consumer? For sure. Right. Because, um, Again, like I've I've been someone who's been saying the labor market is resilient and dynamic. That was one of the things I mentioned back in February. We can disagree. You know, some people might, might not agree that it's strong, but unequivocally, everyone must objectively agree that it's been resilient and dynamic for the labor market. And so I think that so long as the labor market continues to be resilient and dynamic, the U.S. consumer is going to be resilient and dynamic, and the U.S. economy, more broadly speaking, is going to be resilient and dynamic. So as we kind of uh, parcel through these different areas of you know, real estate or the stock market or even crypto, everything's been pretty resilient and dynamic, right? And so I think you're right that it basically all comes back down to the labor market, right? Because the consumer accounts for basically two thirds of, of economic activity and, and GDP growth. So if, if two thirds of the economy is resilient and dynamic, then the economy should keep being resilient and dynamic, right? Yeah, there we go. I like that, dude. But um, yeah, <laughs> keep it so, simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, right. Keep it simple, stupid. I mean, at the same yeah. at this at the same time, like that's kind of where I think like economics can kind of be broken down to, right? I mean, it, it sometimes it yeah. likes to be overcomplicated and bogged down, and um, you know, at the end of the day, if you just kind of look at the consumer and kind of how that market's working, it, that's how you can, I get, I guess, get a real good pulse on on the overall uh, macro environment, but. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here now. I mean, we, we've kind of talked it. about since the time that, um, you know, in between the last interview and now. All right. Well, where are we going, man? Let's see. Let's hear some predictions. Um, in terms of like equities or where, where do you want me to go with this? Well, OK, well, let's all right. Let's 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 break it down there here in like three different let's sectors. Right? We can do the overall macro environment, um, you know, with Jerome Powell. Obviously, he's going to con- continue to raise rates or kind of like pause, maybe, um, you know, raise 
25 basis points every other or every third meeting or whatnot. Um, so how do you see that, I guess, playing out for the consumer uh, right away? Like, how do you think unemployment's going to work and, you know, the overall jobs market and that kind of aspect of things? Sure. So maybe I'll say this. I think the Fed is done. Um, uh, I, I, I've been saying that now for like three months. They did one more hike after I said that. So boohoo, another 25 basis points, you know. But as far as I'm concerned, the Fed has been done. The Fed is done. Um, and so, you know, hopefully that kind of provides some reprieve into the financial system, but I, I continue to expect disinflation just because of the lag effects of monetary policy and how all that works. So I think that, you know, kind of just tying into, you know, the conversation that we just had, I think that, um, everything has shown itself to be very resilient and dynamic. The biggest concern that I have is this, you know, re-steepening of the yield curve and the fact that we might uninvert here pretty soon. And I think, you know, that's kind of the, the bulletproof recession signal in a lot of ways. And we're getting very close to that. So that's super hard for me to ignore. So this is kind of the, the balance of powers, right? It's like how much weight of the evidence you put on one thing versus the other. Um, but I think that, you know, it's been a very bad bet to bet against the labor market and the economy for the last 18 months. It certainly hasn't been a phenomenal economy, but it's been really damn good, especially given you know, the context of what's actually taking place from a monetary perspective. And so I think that, you know, we're going to have a recession. Whether that recession happens in six months or 24 months is anyone's guess. Even at the beginning of this year, my base case was that we were going to have a recession. I even conceded it could come at some point in 2024. I don't know, right? Like I don't have that crystal ball. So I think that, you know, continuing to price in this, uh, like a deterioration is going to happen eventually, but not yet. And we can kind of keep kicking that can down the road so long as that labor market remains pretty damn strong. And when we spoke last, I think the unemployment rate was 3.4%. Um, or I think it went from 3.4 to 3.5. Um, and I said that we should expect that to soften. And it's gotten to 3.8. Um, but by any metric, you know, 3.8% unemployment is fantastic, right? Like that's a, that's a really, really strong unemployment rate. And so you know, even if we got to 4.2, that's still a really good unemployment rate. It's, it's, it's worse than it was at, at 3.5 and at 3.8, but it's still really good. So I think that we should expect to see softness, but still see that kind of resilient nature of the labor market and the broader economy for the foreseeable future, at least for the next six months. Yeah. And I, and I mean, I could, I could foresee that as well, but uh, you know, you said the fed is done. Um, so yeah. meaning by that, by they're done, do you think that there is going to be some sort of a pivot by next year? Because, you know, Powell has kind of stayed true to what he said, right. Higher for longer. He said he doesn't anticipate any sort of pivot until at least late next year, maybe even 2025, but the market's yeah. calling for a pivot now uh, in, in like springtime of next year. Um, mm -hmm. when, you know, the market has been kind of calling for a pivot all year this year. So, um, right. you know, where, where do you kind of land on that aspect of things? Yeah, I, I think the market is premature in that assessment for a cut. Um, but they, I mean, as you, you know, kind of alluded to the, the, the market has been premature expecting a cut very, you know, you know, for the past, you know, 12 months, like at, at the beginning of this year, they were expecting a cut by like the midpoint of the year didn't come right. As the bank failures happened, they were certainly expecting cuts by the end of this year hasn't happened. Right. And so I think the market um, continues to kind of overestimate when those cuts are going to come. I think one of the things that I've been saying is uh, at the soonest, I would expect for a rate cut to come in the third quarter of next year. And that's really just based on my view that we're going to continue to experience disinflation. 
Shelter is really going to cool down. That's 33% of headline and 41% of core CPI. Um, and I, I certainly believe we're going to be below 2% um, at some point next year. Um, that's not in the Fed's model, right, by the way, right? They expect that number to still be very sticky, still in the threes uh, for inflation next year. I think that's an overestimation. Um, but if that happens and we get into that 2% or lower range for CPI, and the Fed is still keeping rates where they are today, I think 5.33% um, for the effective Fed funds. I mean, real interest rates are going to be significantly higher than they are today in that environment. So, you know, that's going to strain the markets even more. And so I think if, if the Fed beats inflation and the labor market softens a little bit, but isn't weak, they, they don't want to crush the labor market. You know, you know, one of the things I talked about was last year, there was an argument to be made that the Fed needed to break something in order to tame inflation. We had CPI at seven, 8% year over year, and everyone, there was no end in sight. And it was like, oh my gosh, the Fed needs to do something now. Something needs to break. We need to break the labor market. We need to break the financial system in order to bring inflation down. Well, miraculously, they've been able to do, they've been able to bring inflation lower. We've had significant disinflation without really breaking something. Like we talked about, you, you could argue that the, the banking failures were breaking something, but not to lead to like a massive cascading credit event, right? And so um, today, I don't think you can make that case. The Fed no longer needs to break something in order to beat inflation. We should be applauding the Fed for that, right? We should be rejoicing in the fact that we no longer need to break something. And so if we bring inflation down and we no longer need to break something, I see no reason for the Fed to be this restrictive in terms of real federal funds rates and real interest rates that, you know, one of the things I've talked about, don't expect them to go to zero unless we get a massive recession or massive, you know, widespread credit event. But we should probably expect them to cut by 150 to 200 basis points, right? Bring that Fed funds into the three handle. Um, we'd still have a positive real federal funds rate. We'd still have positive real interest rates. It would still be higher than the rate of inflation. So it's still restrictive by some means, but it doesn't need to be as restrictive as it is now, right? And so I think that's the key thing. And so I, I could definitely foresee the Fed bringing rates to a more modest level, being neither restrictive nor easy, and just kind of really maintaining a neutral level of monetary policy. And that would, that would mean that they would probably cut between 100 and 200 basis points. All right. So then, yeah, that leads me to my next question then. So when the, when the Fed starts to, to cut or even next year, um, as you know, the Fed either, you know, keeps it level or whatnot, uh, before, even prior, before they cut, right. We, we've kind of gone over the S and P it's been hanging in yep. there doing pretty resilient and average sort of year, right. Up 10% about year to date as we're recording yep. this here. Um, so yeah, what's the prediction of, of equities? Because it seems like the narrative has been around, you know, the, the seven companies essentially carrying the S and P five oh, yeah. this yeah. entire year. So, you know, I guess, what does that mean for everything? I know that's leaving it broad, right. With so many publicly traded companies, but um, yeah, I'll give you the floor. Yeah. So one of the things that I talked about this year um, and in the podcast that we recorded back in February is um, no matter what was going to happen to the stock market or to the economy, I was going to buy equities this year. Right. And I was saying, hopefully I get to buy those equities at lower prices. Right. That, that hasn't necessarily come. If you're talking about, you know, the Russell 2000, I think that's down about 5% here to date. Um, you know, the Dow is basically flat. Um, but I mean, look at, look at the NASDAQ up like 33% year to date. Look at the S&P up like nine or 10% year to date. Um, so I think that, you know, as we look forward, if we do get that cut, even if it's just a moderate cut, I don't even think we need a cut to be bullish at this point. 
Um, even if the Fed just takes their foot off the gas pedal and they maintain interest rates where they're at, I think that's a bullish catalyst, um, generally speaking. Um, so I want to continue to buy equities. I'm one of the few people who hasn't been complaining about the fact that the Magnificent Seven are leading the market higher because, you know, one of the things I talk about is like, those are the MVPs of the market, right? And it's like, if I was creating an, MBT, an NBA team today and I had the opportunity to draft any player, who would I pick on my team? I pick LeBron James, I pick Kevin Durant, I pick Giannis, I pick Steph Curry, and I pick Luka Doncic, right? Like just great players. I pick Jokic, I pick all the MVPs of the market. I want to do the same thing in my portfolio, right? Like I don't want to go out and draft some second rounder, right? And be like, oh, that's the guy I want on my team, some unproven, you know, 20-year-old. No, I want to get LeBron James on my team. I want to get Steph Curry. Um, And so Google, Apple, Microsoft, Meta, those are the MVPs of the stock market. Those are the guys that I want to draft into my portfolio. And so, um, you know, from that perspective, like I don't complain about the Magnificent Seven doing this well. And if you broadly look at, um, you know, tech versus the S&P 500 or mega cap growth versus the S&P 500, over the past 12 years, it's been in an uptrend. So by definition, those stocks outperform the market year after year after year after year. And they're going to go through ebbs and flows. They're going to go through periods of underperformance, but generally speaking, they rise. Um, so for me, I'm happy with that. And so I think that, you know, this has been a tech led market. It hasn't just been a magnificent seven led market. And so I think that you, we should continue to expect tech to provide that level of alpha and the beta that we want in our portfolios. And even as someone who's, you know, 28 years old, and I think for most people who are under the age of 40, you should probably have an overweight position in tech, generally speaking. So these are the companies, regardless, that you want to be drafting into your portfolio. And so I think that we should continue to expect to see tech outperform the market um, and not just mega cap tech. I'm talking like all tech, right? So that I think that's really kind of the place that, that investors should be positioned, both in terms of short-term trading um, for opportunities, as well as energy stocks. Um, and for long-term portfolio allocation, some of these stocks, by the way, are, are, are super cheap. Like, you know, um, this isn't a company that I love, but I, it's certainly something I've been buying a little bit over the last couple of months is, is Block Inc. Square. Um, you know, they're trading super cheap relative to sales, relative to earnings. They're still growing at, at really strong paces and they're down uh, this year. Like this isn't one of those companies that's been significantly participating in the upside. And like, I don't mean to sound super bullish on block. I'm not super bullish on block, but it's a company that I want to have a little bit of exposure to in my portfolio, in addition to those MVPs in the market, right? So, you know, it's, it's like some of these stocks still look pretty damn attractive in my opinion. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like the narrative around tech right now, um, at least from, you know, a lot of the guys in traditional finance is that, you know, tech is going to be hit the hardest when it comes to a recession or some sort of economic downturn, right? When money gets tighter, a lot of these tech companies, they're looked at as riskier investments. And because of these riskier investments, you know, generally speaking, if the economy is kind of shaky, you want something like a little bit more steady, whether it's consumer staples or something along those lines. So I guess, why do you uh, think that, uh, you know, I guess traditional finance is still kind of, I guess, wary when it comes to the tech sector, although it's been you know, I guess booming for the past decade plus. I mean, like, it's crazy to me that people think that way because like, were they not present last year, right? We had tech got massacred last year. And like I said, some of these tech companies are still getting massacred this year. It's not just like everything's rallying, right? It's like, it's been a stock pickers market this year for sure. Um, But 
And yeah, you know, it's like unequivocally, if we go into a recession or another massive rate hike cycle, which I think is super, super low probabilities, tech always gets hurt the hardest in that environment. But that was last year's story, right? That was 2022. Um, I mean, Jesus Christ, like Amazon and Google were down almost 50% uh, last year, you know, like, and I was like, is, is no one else seeing this? Like we should be buying these stocks right now. I was on a podcast in August of last year in July saying, Hey, these are great companies. These are the MVPs of the market. We should be buying these right now. You know, like, hello, like, yeah, they could fall another 20%, but over the long run, these are the stocks you want to be buying. So again, it's like, you know, the recession isn't promised. And what if that recession takes two years to come? What do stocks do between now and the next 24 months, right? Maybe a company like Amazon is going to go up another 40% over those two years for, you know, a 20% annualized return. And then it falls 30%. So it's like, okay, if it goes up 40%, then it falls 30%, right? We're basically break even versus where we were today. And maybe we could trim some of that exposure on the way up. Like there's still opportunities in the market, right? It's not like it's, I, I think that most people recognize a recession is coming, but then they jump to the conclusion that it's coming in two months. And everything is going significantly lower. And it's like, I don't have that crystal ball. And the people who have been predicting that recession have been predicting it for the past 18 months and it hasn't happened. And stocks are, are higher today than they were 12 months ago, six months ago, 18 months ago. So, you know, for, like there's been a lot of opportunity costs in staying on the sidelines. And that was why, from my perspective, going into so much uncertainty in 2023, I said, man, I don't know where this is going to shake out. I think things probably go lower. But either way, I'm going to be a buyer of equities. And I've stuck to that. You know, it's, I've been buying incrementally, you know, probably month after month, right? I think the longest break that I took was about six or seven weeks of not buying any stocks. And, you know, I dipped my toes back in again a week and a half ago. So it's like, you know, gearing back up again. It's like, okay, got to be buying. Things have cooled down. You know, the S&P's turning a little bit lower. The NASDAQ is losing some of that momentum. I'm going to step in a little bit more. So that's what I've been doing. Yeah, that's all fair to say. But, you know, obviously a lot has, has kind of transpired in the past couple of months, especially like geopolitical conflict. Do, do you factor yeah. in any of that uh, into, you know, maybe some of your, uh, you know, I guess stock pickage, not just because of like maybe some of the companies and like geopolitical risk, whether it's, you know, having a branch in uh, one of these countries that is at, at war, but um, right. more so just from like, I guess the overall you know, macro risk of, I don't know, some people are saying it as far as potential for like World War III. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if I subscribe to that theory or not, but either way, you know, there, there is some wars breaking out. So do you, uh, I guess, right. take that into account as to, you know, maybe being a little bit more cautious, although you are jumping back in? Yeah, I, I think that um, that's the safe play, right, is to be a little bit more cautious. And so I think the way that I've navigated that is by saying, okay, there's heightened uncertainty right now that could get a lot worse with those, you know, geopolitical conflicts in those situations. So at the very, I think for me, at the very least, what you do is you expand your DCA schedule. You'd be a little bit more patient in how the speed with which you're allocating capital into the market. Maybe you increase some of that bond portfolio exposure, um, particularly, you know, I would say maturity is less than one year. Um, and then I think that, you know, the other thing that you do is, you know, when was it? I think it was back in August for the first time I bought some energy stocks. So I bought Chevron, I bought Shell, I bought ExxonMobil, I bought Helix, I bought Console Energy, and I bought uh, Targa Resources. Um, and so a couple of weeks ago, or you know, the week after the, the Israel-Palestine situation, I went out and I increased a little bit of those positions, you know, so not by much. Um, because again, like, I don't want to be a quote-unquote prisoner of the moment and say, oh my my God, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I need to buy energy stocks. I need to buy gold. I'm only going to buy treasuries. 
uh, I need to buy defense stocks. Like that, that's just not really how I kind of navigate the portfolio. So I recognize that, you know, the events that have taken place increase the probability that oil goes a little bit higher or stays higher for longer <laughs> in Fed speak language, right? Um, and so maybe I want a little bit more of those energy stocks in my portfolio, but it doesn't mean tripling my energy allocation or anything of that nature, right? So I think that's why for me, it's like, man, I remember back in 2017, 18, people were saying that we were gonna go into World War III with Trump, right? And so if you're, if you're making investment decisions based on the outbreak of like widespread worldwide war, I think it's really bad portfolio management. Um, so like, I, I'm just not going to allocate in that way. Right. And so, like I said, I think the, the furthest I would go is saying, you know, yeah, sure. If you want to be a little bit more patient because of the higher uncertainty, just stretch out your DCA schedule a little bit more. And Hey, you almost want to hope stocks go a little bit lower if you're, if you're stretching out your DCA schedule. Right. So um, I think that's totally fine. Yeah, that's all fair to say. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, right? There is a, there is a lot of political tensions going on, but yeah, it doesn't mean like, you know, I guess there could be some sense of potential for some alpha in the market, right? I mean, it seems like anytime there's some sort of conflict like this, right? Somebody is benefiting off of it, right? I mean, like I saw sure. a nice screenshot of like the defense sector uh, right when the Israeli uh, war or conflict or whatever you want to characterize it as started to break out and they were all in the green by 5% plus, I believe. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it's just kind of like a nature of the beast when it, when it comes to all these things. But, um, you know, you seem very bullish going forward. So, um, you know, as far as like, I guess the recession and, uh, you know, when that's going to occur, I'm not going to put you fully on the spot and say like, give me a timeline of that. But, you know, are you can, kind of anticipating potentially, I guess, maybe, uh, I guess a softer landing than maybe um, many are predicting because of, you know, all the things that we've kind of lined out, right? The resilient consumer, um, equity still doing all right. Um, kind of the, mm -hmm. the, the overall real estate market um, from residential kind of holding true, right? Obviously, there is some cracks in uh, commercial real estate and some other aspects of things. But um, yeah, do you see like the overall economy? Maybe not, uh, I guess, being so doom and gloom, which a lot of people are, are kind of thinking it's going to lead to. Yeah, I, I don't see that doom and gloom. And, you know, I'll fully concede the, the biggest concern that I have right now is the fact that we're seeing the re-steepening of that yield curve. And we continue to see the um, leading economic indicators from the conference board. I think we're 17 months of, of a contraction, um, 17 straight months of a contraction, which might even be a record. I'm not sure. Um, so, you know, there are some hints that that recession is still in play. But, you know, like I say, it's like, does that recession happen, you know, 12 months from now to 24 months from now? And, you know, what do we do with our portfolios until then? Right? It's like, I'm really not sure. And, you know, there's so many people who are, are extremely bearish on Twitter. And um, they really have this like uh, super, obviously they're, they, they obviously have a negative view, but they're really trying to convince everyone else of their perspectives. And I think they have a lot of bitterness and they're, they're kind of shouting at the market, um, kind of like the old man, like screaming at the kids playing outside, right? Outside of their, outside of their house. And one of the things I say is like, man, these people, like these super bearish um, investors, just go buy the one-year treasury and go on vacation. You're going to collect five, almost I think 5.4% on the one-year treasury yield and get paid to go on vacation. Um, sounds like a great deal. And if that recession comes within the next 12 months, you can sell that treasury at a significant premium. Um, so I think that if that's, if that's someone's view, I'm not going to try to convince them otherwise that, you know, sure, a recession is coming. Um, and then my word of advice would be go out and buy one-year treasuries. Um, and if you, if you think that that recession is, you know, further than it is sooner, 
Um, I think you're still patiently buying and DCAing into equities. You're probably still buying some treasury exposure because that risk of the recession is still there. And if you're someone who kind of believes in, in sound money um, and the, you know, exponential adoption, you're buying Bitcoin as well. So I think that, you know, that's kind of the, a great recipe for a portfolio right now is, is being well diversified, having a lot of tech, picking up some energy exposure, owning treasuries, having some money market funds. You have to be a prudent investor at all times, right? I'm not, I, just because I'm bullish, I'm not saying you're, you're, you're pointing the finger at me with this, but I think some people, some people might is like, I'm not saying abandon risk and, and risk management and throw caution to the wind and go ape into some YOLO ARC calls that expire in two weeks. You know, like I'm not saying that. Um, all I'm saying is I'm 28 years old and all I know is that I need to buy, be a buyer of equities um, and of all assets more broadly speaking. And so I, I've been doing that in my portfolio 100%. Yeah, I mean, and, and you mentioned it, and uh, we talked about it a little bit on the pre-show, so I, I'd be remiss to ask, right? We just recently had a little bit of a Bitcoin pump. We're recording this on October 24th, so on the 23rd, if you weren't on Twitter or on Bitcoin Twitter, I guess, <laughs> uh, you'd be you'd be uh, missing out on some fun memes and everything kind of pumping, right? I think it went up 12 or 13% in a day, and we had, uh, I think it was like uh, four or 5,000 in like a, a 10 minutes. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a quick pump. Uh, a lot of a lot of fun to be back on the internet. Um, so yeah, man. Like, what's your outlook uh, for for Bitcoin going forward? Right. I mean, we got the halving coming up, and yeah, a lot of different you know different macro events that we've obviously lined out. That you know, some people I think in traditional equities are now starting to pay attention a little bit more to Bitcoin and the potential of that. You know, I guess decoupling from the stock market. So uh, I'll leave mm -hmm. it. I'll leave it. I'll leave it there. So where do you see Bitcoin going now? Well, you know, I mean, this is the amazing thing about Bitcoin is like right now it's really facing, you know, Bitcoin specific catalysts and tailwinds. So we have this whole spot ETF situation with like five or six of these different funds who are basically seeking approval. It's going to be such a massive catalyst. Like I just can't understate that enough. We're going into the having event basically like 185 days away. Um, and if I'm right about my assessment that the Fed even cuts rates by 100 to 250 basis points um, at some point next year. You know, those are three massive, massive catalysts that are, are coming down the pipeline, essentially, for Bitcoin. The market continues to price that in, especially as the probabilities of these approvals becomes a question of, of when, not if, and also um, sooner rather than later, right? So the market just kind of continues to price this in. And I think yesterday's price action was emblematic of that. Um, so I think that a lot of the bullishness that I had in Bitcoin... And it was funny because I rewatched our podcast. We really didn't talk about Bitcoin at all um, at the time. But, you know, on Twitter and with the newsletter, I was highlighting some of these statistical indicators that were kind of flashing for Bitcoin that were showing that we were going into this kind of new market regime. And, or at the very least, that the worst was kind of behind us. And we've unequivocally seen that now, right? I mean, um, and I think we kind of continue to stack evidence that good things are happening. We're above the 200-week EMA. We're above the 200-day SMA. We're above the short-term holder realized price. We're above the long-term holder realized price. Both of those on-chain indicators are ticking higher, so they have a positive rising slope. These Williams percent R oscillators that I really use and rely on are flashing great signals. And then we have all of these different fundamental catalysts. And so certainly Bitcoin is not going to be immune to a recession if and when that comes, right? So obviously that kind of opens up a can of worms of, of how does Bitcoin per perform before that recession? How does it actually react in that? Uh, possible recession, right? Because I mean, when was the bottom for Bitcoin in March of this year? 
it was with the bank failures on the announcement that these banks were going under and everyone's like, oh shit, the traditional financial system is in trouble. I better seek an alternative one, right? And all of a sudden this becomes some became a massive catalyst for Bitcoin specifically. And so as we kind of look at, at Bitcoin, I think this year it's really been a story of Bitcoin versus everything else in the crypto markets. And so this is something that I've talked about as well is like Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, but cryptocurrencies aren't Bitcoin, right? And so, you know, Bitcoin dominance at new multi-year highs, um, I think hitting the highest level since April of 2022, um, you know, that's massive, continues to chug higher and higher all year. So this has been a Bitcoin dominated market. And especially if you're denominating any altcoins like Cardano or, um, you know, Matic or, you know, Decentraland or, you know, Uniswap, if you're denominating those in Bitcoin terms, they're at year to date lows, right? Or, you know, they're hitting cycle lows or even falling below the 2022 lows. And so this just kind of proof positive, right? Of what I'm saying is it's really Bitcoin versus everything else. Um, and so I think my base case is that eventually these altcoins are probably going to catch up, but, you know, they make great trading instruments, but I certainly don't see them as, as investable instruments, right? So you can trade them to the upside, high risk, high reward. So if you have that kind of appetite, you have a playground to go in and play in. But I think as, as an investor, just focus on Bitcoin, you know, forget everything else. So um, that's kind of my focus when I talk with family members or friends or people who I've kind of networked with in the past, even, you know, these older traditional finance guys, I'm like, look, like, why don't you just have 2% of your portfolio in Bitcoin? You know, it's like, just have 2%. Um, and I think that's kind of speaks to the catalyst that we're about to see here with these spot ETF approvals is as, I mean, what the fuck? Like Larry Fink is getting on national television, pitching Bitcoin as this risk uh, risk averse asset flight to quality. What the hell? You know, Larry Fink from BlackRock is talking about Bitcoin as a flight to quality asset. Um, and so what ha this is the amazing thing about Bitcoin is no one is employed by Bitcoin in the monetary network. It doesn't have a CEO. It doesn't have a marketing team. It doesn't have a foundation. It doesn't have anything. But everyone also works for Bitcoin. At the end of the day, these traditional finance firms are now going to become some of the largest advertisers, advocates, and marketers for, you know, this monetary network that we know as Bitcoin. And so as they pitch their clients, hey, 1%, 2%, let's boost your Sharpe ratio in your portfolio by just getting a 2% allocation of Bitcoin. Um, you know, these institutional investors who are doing business with BlackRock and these other ETFs, they're going to come into that market. And even if it's just a 2% allocation, this is going to be such a massive catalyst, not right away, not immediately, even though I fully expect to see a massive candle when those approvals do come in, but this is going to create passive flows into Bitcoin for the next 30 plus years, right? And so what more could you ask for as a long-term investor into a scarce asset? Yeah. And it seems like, you know, you, you lined it out, right? Larry Fink, BlackRock, a lot of these big time traditional investors are starting to open their eyes and get to, to that. So, you know, I guess I'll just kind of leave it, leave it there with, with you uh, by asking, you know, essentially with the traditional finance guys that you network with, you already kind of like, you know, I guess uh, hinted towards saying, why not allocate 2% of your portfolio there? Like, how is that conversation being received? Is, is Are people more open to it now than you'd say maybe uh, six, 12 months ago than, uh, than you know, uh, uh, than uh, I guess you would have maybe anticipated? Or um, uh, are they still, I guess, a little resistant when it comes to uh, the, the funny internet money or whatever they, they seem to call it? I, I think it depends. You know, it's, it's kind of scalar. Like, um, you know, last November, before the FTX situation, um, I was speaking with somebody who manages a shit ton of money. And um, he was like, he was like, 
he thought it was so cool that I do this analysis and commentary around Bitcoin and crypto in addition to the other things that I'm involved with. And he was like, man, it's just so over my head. And it, so I think, first of all, it's, it's just a knowledge and information delay. And so I, I expect as these institutions have the ability to get involved, they are going to be required to get involved simply because their clients are requesting it. And at the end of the day, these are service providers, so they're going to meet client demands. So I think that, you know, that's going to be part of the adoption curve. But then there's some folks, and I won't name names, but, you know, traditional finance guys um, who are uh, decision makers at massive financial institutions who are on board with Bitcoin and crypto and trying to get funds approved and so on and so forth. And they are certainly more forward thinking, and I think they've done some of the homework. And so it's kind of, it's, it's bifurcated, right? You still have all these naysayers, just like anything else. And so I think that over time, this is kind of the the bet or the speculation on, on Bitcoin and crypto is eventually the world and other investors are going to come to the realization that, that you and I might have right now. And they're going to put um, a premium on, on scarcity and, and, and on Bitcoin specifically. So I, I think that's kind of where we're at. And it, it's, it's going to be this, um, you know, it's, there's still so much progress that still needs to be made, but I think we're on the right track. And so now it's just about, you know, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. And eventually, you know, sometimes we're going to have those FTX situations where we go 10 steps back. And then it's like, okay, we got to grind back two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. Um, so, you know, hopefully those things kind of, I mean, God, what a terrible situation, you know, last year, but um, just did so, so much negativity to the space. Um, but once again, I think that it's like, that's why people are now putting the premium on, okay, spot and chill, right? I just want to buy Bitcoin. I want to put it in cold storage. And at the very least, if I'm an institutional investor, the only way I'm going to get involved is if BlackRock is my, is my custodian, right? Essentially. So I think that's kind of the gold standard in the industry. And, and I think that that demand and that adoption and that, that um, knowledge arbitrage is coming. Yeah. And I hear you and I agree with you hundred percent. I think, you know, that's, it's going to be big once these bigger firms come in and, you know, everybody's yep. going to start to open, open their eyes. But um, I'd be remiss to ask you about a little bit more personally, you know, how, how things are going, because, you know, last time we spoke, you were, you know, still in the U S about to do the whole digital nomad thing. You had a little bit shorter of a hair. Now you got the, the hair. <laughs> you're enjoying a lot of it. So how are things going? Obviously, you know, your newsletter is taking off. Everything that you're doing is, is outstanding. And if everybody hasn't checked you out, they absolutely need to. So, uh, yeah, tell us how things are going a little bit personally, man. Thanks, bro. Yeah. So, yeah, back in February, I think right around the time we recorded that podcast, I had actually made the decision that I was going to leave the U.S. and try the whole digital nomad situation because, uh, you know, I, I quit my corporate banking job about three years ago. Um and, you know, the, basically how I've been making money is from my own trading activities and investing activities. And then from doing the newsletter business with Cubic Analytics, which I started in May of 2021. And so, you know, uh, by all different, you know, ways that I can measure it, I've had, you know, a lot of really good success, but still very early, I think, in terms of where this can continue to grow. So, you know, I made the decision, um, do I stay in the U.S. or do I go abroad? And what does that kind of look like? And oddly enough, it was cheaper to come live abroad. You know, I'm living out of these Airbnbs and, you know, I'm spending anywhere from a thousand to fifteen hundred a month uh, to rent these places. But, you know, my food costs are significantly lower and I'm just, you know, I'm so grateful, so blessed because when I when I left my job to start doing this venture that I'm on now kind of full time, you know, I started from zero. I started it from nothing. Right. I had zero following on Twitter. I didn't even have a newsletter. I didn't even know I was going to write a newsletter. Um, but I did know that 
kind of the grander vision for this is that I wanted to live abroad. I wanted to travel. I wanted to try that whole digital nomad thing. So I think, you know, I'm in the Albanian Riviera. You can see the reflection off the, off the window behind me, but you know, I have the whole beach right here, crystal blue water. It's, it's, it's gorgeous, great weather. Um, so I'm just living life, being extremely grateful. And, um, you know, I'm thankfully like the growth and trajectory of everything has been really solid. And, you know, now that, that Bitcoin and some of these crypto uh, things are, are picking back up again, I, I'm, I'm glad I've been a buyer this year for sure. So hopefully that trend kind of continues to persist and uh, no complaints, man. It's been epic. And um, I was stoked when you reached out to me the other day to, to do a pod. So, so this was a blast, man. Yeah, for sure, dude. And it seems like uh, it was good timing, right? I get you on right, right when the bull pump comes on. So uh, it, <laughs> It's going to be great uh, to, to put, up, put all this out. But uh, before I let you go, what's next for you? Do you have any like, uh, you know, I know we kind of talked a little pre-show that you're just kind of going through the, the whims of things. But, um, you know, any any big plans coming up in uh, maybe uh, the last quarter or maybe early 24? Man, I think at this point, I'm just kind of keeping the course in terms of, you know, the, the business side of things in terms of, you know, posting on Twitter, doing the newsletter. Um, and all that kind of stuff. So as much as possible, I mean, the name of the game for me for the last three years has been create value system, right? And to be objective and as unbiased as possible um, and to be willing to change my mind and to share that transparently with people. And as, you know, just basically trying to share alpha and create alpha. That was really what I wanted to do when I left my banking job. So for me, that's kind of just continues to be the name of the game is like, okay, I just got to keep sharing as much as I can and trying to provide unique perspectives and share how I'm approaching things. Cause at the end of the day, that's all I could do. I can't tell you how someone else should be approaching things or how this person is approaching things, but I can definitely tell you how I see things and how I'm approaching my own portfolio. So that's kind of my approach in terms of life and living. Um, I'll be in Albania for like another six weeks. Then I'm going to Italy. I'm going to visit some family there um, for the holidays. And some of my family from the U S are actually flying out to Italy to have a big reunion. So I'm really excited for that. And um Kind of keeping it uh, a little bit go with the flow, but I think I'm going to be going to Asia at the beginning of the of 2024. So if anyone has any suggestions on where to go in Asia, I'm trying to I'm trying to get some insights here. You know, I want to go to like Thailand, Bali for sure, maybe Malaysia, maybe Vietnam. So I don't know if you've been there, but if anyone has any experience, please let me know because I'd love to hear um, any stories or input that you might have. I haven't been there yet, but I definitely, you know, Bali's obviously on the list and, you know, a lot of- Come meet me there, bro. I'll, I'll see you yeah. in January. <laughs> yeah, dude, maybe, maybe I will. I, I know like I have, I have some tentative plans to go over to Europe in uh, late February and early March. So once I get those finalized, okay. maybe we can link up there or something like that too. So Where are you going to go in Europe? We're, we're totally derailing this into like a personal conversation, but yeah. where are you going in Europe? So uh, I, I haven't like released the full details, but I might be going to the, the UK for a little bit. And then there's a, a conference in Madeira of uh, that's a Bitcoin. Oh, nice. so I kind of want to go there. I think it's like the first weekend in March, I want to say. So I want to go there as well. Um, so I'm trying to get those details ironed out. I'm trying to get, yeah. I want to speak at this conference. So if anybody is listening that has the hookup, I've said, let's make it happen. And uh, yeah, let me moderate some panels or do something. But um, I also might link up with uh, the football team in Bedford and and some other things, the Bitcoin racing teams up there too in the UK. So I might be doing a bunch of different things. Who knows, man? I'm trying to go up there and create some content, show off some cool things that are going on in Europe because, you know, I'm just kind of, a lot of times when people just see me, I'm here in my my little uh, office thing where uh, <laughs> I'm just interviewing people. So I want to kind of show a little peek behind the hood and do some traveling like you're doing, man. Dude, I think that sounds like a great plan. And if you, um, 
if there's anything ever, ever anything I could do to help, or if you want to bounce ideas, just hit me up, bro. We can talk about some stuff. Yeah, dude, for sure. Well, Caleb, you've been the best coming on again, dude. Uh, taking taking away some time from uh, sunbathing, growing the hair out, you know, relaxing on the beach, <laughs> yeah, living yeah, life. Yeah. So uh, I'll 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 let you sign it sign us off here. Where can people find you and uh, figure out more about what you're doing? Just check me out on Twitter. I have my uh, my username there, just Caleb Franzen. Um, and then my newsletter, Cubic Analytics. It's free on Substack. So cubicanalytics.substack.com. Every Saturday, I send out a report that covers macro, the stock market, and Bitcoin. That's why I called it Cubic. I kind of have these three pillars. Um, and it's a free report every Saturday. So um, if you don't like it, you can unsubscribe. No cost to you. And uh, I think, like I said, the growth kind of speaks for itself. I'm a little bit biased. I think it's some great research. Um, but if you, know, if you enjoyed what I kind of had to share here today, and if you appreciate objective and um, adaptable perspectives on those different pillars of, of markets, then come check me out there on Substack. Yeah, definitely. I, I uh, will give the green candle stamp of approval. You should definitely check out this <laughs> back. So, Caleb, thanks so much for coming on, man. Appreciate you, bro. We'll talk soon.